Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 26th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us. So let's get started with our litigation report. John? Thank you, Renee. The California Supreme Court published a new decision this week that addresses and resolved ambiguous language in the labor code that is used to calculate the correct pay for workers who are required to work through mandatory lunch and rest breaks. In this case, Lowe's Hollywood LLC employed Jessica Fiera as a bartender and paid her hourly wages as well as quarterly non-discretionary incentive payments. When she had to work during her lunch or rest break, her employer paid Fiera only the hourly wage and did not include a percentage of the quarterly incentive. Fiera filed a class action against Lowe's for omitting her non-discretionary incentive payments from his calculations of premium pay and thus failed to pay her for non-compliant meal or rest breaks in accordance with her regular rate of compensation as required by the labor code. But the trial court ruled against her and granted summary adjudication in favor of Lowe's on the grounds that calculating premium pay according to an employee's base hourly rate is proper under Labor Code Section 226.7c. The Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court, but the California Supreme Court reversed them in the case of Fiera v. Lowe's Hollywood Hotel, LLC. The question in this case was what the legislator meant when it used the phrase regular rate of compensation in the labor code. Neither the labor code nor wage orders define the term, and the words by themselves may reasonably be construed to mean either hourly wages, as Lowe's contends, or hourly wages, plus non-discretionary payments, as Fiera contends. After review of the legislative history and case law, the Supreme Court held that the term regular rate of compensation in Section 226.7 has the same meaning as regular rate of pay in Section 510A and encompasses not only hourly wages, but all non-discretionary payments for work performed by the employee. This interpretation comports with the remedial purpose of the labor code, wage orders, and with general guidance that the state's labor laws are to be liberally construed in favor of workers' protection. The Supreme Court also rejected Lowe's request that the decision be prospectively applied. Thus, the decision shall have retroactive effect on all California employers. Now back to you, Renee. Purdue Pharma threatened the state of California with what the state's lawyers called colossally idiotic sanctions. After becoming the target of multiple civil actions across the states, Purdue Pharma is seeking Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the Southern District of New York Bankruptcy Court. Nine states have yet to agree to the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy plan, including California. The Connecticut Attorney General had harsh words when attorneys representing the family who owns the bankrupt OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma threatened sanctions against California and other states. In the draft motion sent by email, the Sackler family's attorneys said they sought the sanctions, including fees and reprimands, because the states made allegations that lacked evidence. One example quoted in the filing is that Connecticut ignored the Sacklers' demand that it produce documents to back up its allegation that the family engaged in knowing participation, and in deception. 
Attorneys for the Sackler family wrote that they were serving the draft 21 days before they intended to file it to give the states an opportunity to back up their assertions. But the Sackler family attorneys withdrew the motion after they got tremendous blowback from a lot of different parts for their move. In a sharp series of comments that a Connecticut attorney general described the withdrawn proposal as a threat against his state, an organized crime family intimidation tactic, and, he said, colossally idiotic. He also said he made the allegations at issue in a complaint filed more than two years ago, and the last-minute filing was an attempt to pressure the state to accept a settlement proposal. And in news about another opioid litigation, some say that pharmacies now remain opioid litigation targets in California cases. With a $26 billion nationwide settlement in sight over claims that the three largest U.S. drug distributors and Johnson & Johnson helped fuel a nationwide uh, opioid epidemic, State and local governments will soon turn their attention to pharmacies and a handful of drug makers. There are rumors of a settlement proposal this week with distributors McKesson Corporation, Cardinal Health Incorporated, and Amerisource Bergen Corporation contributing a combined $21 billion, while Johnson & Johnson would pay $5 billion. Noticeably absent from the potential $26 billion deal are pharmacy operators including Walgreens Boots Alliance, Walmart Incorporated, Rite Aid Corporation, and CVS Health Corporation, which have been accused of ignoring red flags that opioid drugs were being diverted into illegal channels. The deal also would not include drug makers AbV Incorporated, Teva Pharmaceutical Industries Limited, or Endo International PLC, which have been accused of misleadingly marketing their pain medicines as safe. The pharmacies and drug makers have denied the claims, saying rising opioid prescriptions were driven by doctors, that they followed federal law, and that the known risks were included in U.S.-approved labels for the drugs. News of their proposed nationwide settlement came three weeks into a jury trial in New York, and legal experts said upcoming court proceedings will pressure the remaining defendants to reach a deal. The drug makers are currently defending themselves at the New York trial and a trial in Orange County, California, and are expected to face other, another trial in San Francisco, along with the pharmacies later this year. The pharmacies which settled the New York case shortly before trial also face an October trial in Ohio. After start of the Orange County case earlier this year, the Allergen Defense Counsel, in her opening statements through her co-defendants in the opioid litigation, the pharmacy chains under the bus claiming they were the responsible party in unleashing hundreds of millions of prescription opioids as they are the firewall in mitigating the non-existent opioid crisis, they say. This illustration of the blame others defense strategy 
has fewer targets as supply chain participants settle cases, removing opportunities for remaining defendants to shift blame on someone else. The possible settlement this week reduces the groups of defendants in the litigation and makes it harder for the remaining companies to blame others. And now our crime report. One of the largest hospital systems in the nation and two of its doctors will pay $37.5 million to resolve violations of the federal and state of California False Claims Act. The United States and the state of California entered into a settlement agreement with the Prime Healthcare Services System, Prime's founder and chief executive officer, Dr. Prem Reddy, and interventional cardiologist Dr. Siva Aruna Salam. Prime includes the Ontario-based Prime Healthcare Services, Inc., Prime Healthcare Foundation, Inc., Prime Healthcare Management, Inc., High Desert Heart Vascular Institute, and Desert Valley Hospital, Incorporated. The settlement resolves allegations that Prime paid kickbacks when it overpaid to purchase Aruna Salem's physician practice and surgery center because the company wanted Aruna Salem to refer patients to its Desert Valley Hospital in Victorville. Prime also knowingly overcompensated the doctor when it entered into an employment agreement with him that was based on the volume and value of his patient referrals to Desert Valley Hospital. The hospital system used Dr. Arun Salem's billing number to bill Medicare and Medi-Cal for services that were provided by another doctor, Dr. George Ponce, even though they knew that Ponce's Medicare and Medi-Cal billing privileges had been revoked. Certain prime hospitals billed Medi-Cal, the Federal Employees Health Benefit Program, and the U.S. Department of Labor's Office of Workers' Compensation Programs for inflated invoices for implantable medical hardware. The civil settlement includes the resolution of claims brought under the key Tom or whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act in two lawsuits filed in federal court in Los Angeles. One of the whistleblowers will receive nearly $10 million as his share of the federal government's recovery. Angel Luis Macy's, a 24-year-old San Jacinto man who faked an injury to collect tens of thousands of dollars in workers' comp insurance benefits, pleaded guilty to a felony insurance fraud charge and was immediately sentenced to 24 months probation under a plea agreement with the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. And in exchange for his admission, prosecutors dropped a second related charge. The Superior Court judge certified the terms of the plea deal and imposed the sentence stipulated by the prosecution and defense. In addition to probation, Mr. Macy's was ordered to serve 270 days in a sheriff's work release program and to pay victim restitution of nearly $77,000. Macy's was arrested last February following a months-long investigation by the California Department of Insurance. In 2018, he was employed by a Temecula landscaping company, 
that sent him to Duarte to perform turf upkeep. But while on the job, he told his supervisors that he'd slipped and injured his knee. Macy's then filed a workers' comp claim with his employer's insurance company and began collecting workers' compensation benefits. After a few months, the insurer suspected that Macy's was not as injured as he had told his physician and employer, and the case was referred to the California Department of Insurance for further investigation. Surveillance during the investigation showed Macy's conducting activities that contradicted the physical limitations he described. On multiple occasions, Macy's was seen not using a cane or crutches, even though he claimed he had to use them 100% of the time because of the injury. Investigators claimed that nearly $43,000 in fraudulent benefits were paid. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation announced that as of July 26, 2021, the public counters at all district offices will be open for in-person filing, questions, and assistance. The return-to-work supplemental kiosks will also reopen. Information and assistance officers will be on-site in most offices to answer questions and provide other assistance. Parties are strongly encouraged to continue to submit documents by the DWC's e-filing or JET filing system. This would reduce processing times due to the limited DWC in-office staffing. The Eureka office is now completely virtual, as previously announced, and all documents for cases venued in Eureka that cannot be e-filed or jet-filed should be mailed to the Santa Rosa office. District offices will not hold in-person hearings or accept walk-through documents at this time. Until further notice, DWC will continue to hear all mandatory settlement conferences, priority conferences, status conferences, case-in-chief trials, lien conferences, lien trials, special adjudication unit trials, and expedited hearings telephonically by way of the individually assigned judges' conference lines. The California Insurance Commissioner adopted and issued lower rates for workers' compensation insurance as businesses continued to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and rehire workers. The benchmark rate was reduced by $0.05 to $1.41 per $100 of payroll for workers' comp insurance effective September 1, 2021. The pure premium rate is only advisory as the state legislature has not given the commissioner rate-setting authority over workers' comp insurance rates. The newly approved average advisory pure premium rate level of $1.41 is about 24.2% lower than the January 1, 2021 average pure premium rate of $1.86. This marks the 11th consecutive reduction to the average advisory pure premium rate benchmark since January 2015. Last year, the commissioner resisted calls to add a COVID-19 surcharge to employers' rates 
citing uncertainty over the impact of the pandemic on future workers' compensation claims and costs. The surcharge would have especially affected employers of farm workers, healthcare workers, grocery workers, and other frontline workers. With workers' compensation claims related to COVID-19 now falling amid the vaccine rollout and public health actions, this year's pure premium rates again do not include a pandemic factor. The decision results in an average advisory pure premium rate that is below the $1.50 average rate recommended by the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California in its filing with the Department of Insurance. The advisory rate was issued after a public hearing that he convened on June 7, 2021, and a review of the testimony and evidence submitted by the stakeholders. Despite the pandemic-driven recession, workers' comp claim frequency among California's private self-insured employers rose in 2020. It was fueled by a big increase in the incidence of indemnity claims, which more than offset a decline in medical-only claim frequency. This conclusion was based on a California Workers' Compensation Institute analysis of data compiled by the State Office of Self-Insurance Plans, OSIP. OSIP's annual summary of private self-insured data released July 8 provides the first snapshot of California private self-insured claims experience for cases reported in 2020, including the total number of covered employees, medical-only and indemnity claim counts, and total paid and incurred losses on those claims through the end of the year. Private self-insured employers who covered 2.34 million people in California employees last year and who reported a total of nearly 87,000 claims in 2020 was slightly more than the claims shown in the 2019 report. It is notable that the number of covered employees in the private sector, self-insured sector, held steady while statewide unemployment soared during the pandemic. Many large private self-insured employers fit into the essential worker category. For example, major retail, healthcare, and utilities, where workers were less impacted than the insured workforce by furloughs, layoffs, and remote work. OSIP's initial report on 2020 private self-insured experience shows nearly 44,000 medical-only claims, which is down 15.1% from the 52,000 claims in 2019, and almost 43,000 indemnity claims, up 24.5% from 2019. The 2020 claim count translates to an overall frequency rate of 3.70 claims per 100 private self-insured employees, nearly matching the overall frequency rates from 2018 and 2019. But the breakdown by claim type underscores the major shift in the claim distribution away from less costly medical-only claims and toward more expensive indemnity claims. While medical-only claim frequencies per 100 employees fell from 2.21% in 2019 to a 15-year low of 1.87 in 2020, 
The indemnity claim rate rose from 1.47 to a 15-year high of 1.83. That shift was also evident in the first report paid and incurred loss data. Paid losses on the 2020 private self-insured claims through the fourth quarter totaled $264.4 million. This is $15.6 million more than the comparable figure for 2019. Total paid indemnity, which is primarily temporary disability benefits, increased by 22.5%, while total paid medical fell by 6.7%. A new study from the Workers' Compensation Research Institute investigates patterns of medical care access and utilization that are specific to workers' compensation during the first quarter of 2020. This study was to understand how the timing and delivery of medical treatment were impacted by the pandemic. Claims with injury dates in the first two quarters of 2020 did not that is, did not experience any noticeable delay in medical treatment as compared with the prior year. In fact, several service types showed some slight improvement in waiting time from injury to medical treatment. This was emergency room services, physical medicine, major surgery, and neurological and neuromuscular testing. They were all provided sooner. In states hit hardest by the pandemic during the study period, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Jersey, patients sustained work-related injuries during the early months of the pandemic and did not have longer waiting times before getting medical treatment across eight service groups. There was shorter duration for select service types, such as major surgery and average and they on average happened sooner with the average number of days decreasing from 16.3 days to 11.7 days from injury to major surgery. Fractures and lacerations as well as contusions did not have statistically different times before first medical services for most service types, except for a slightly shorter time before emergency services in 2020. Lacerations and contusions time to emergency services decreased from 0.6 days to 0.4 days on average. For soft tissue claims, there was no substantial delay in treatment for most services observed with some exceptions. For lost time claims, the shares of claims across eight types of services remained largely the same as the two first quarters of 2019. However, the study reports a 4 percentage point drop in the share of claims with emergency room services, which is consistent with the expectation that people would want to avoid going to the emergency room because of fear of virus contraction. The study tracks changes in key measures describing medical service utilization patterns for workers injured in 27 states, including California. The study states represent 68% of the workers' compensation benefits paid in the United States. And in other news, longtime occupational safety and health expert Fred A. Manueli received the inaugural Prevention Through Design, that's the PTD award this month, for his outstanding foresight, 
wisdom, tireless effort, and major accomplishments in preventing harm to workers by helping organizations avoid and prevent hazards. The new PTD award recognizes individuals, teams, businesses, or other organizations that improved worker safety and health by designing out hazards or contributing to the body of knowledge that enables PTD solutions. The annual award is presented by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, that's NIOSH, the American Society of Safety Professionals, ASSP, and the National Safety Council, NSC. The PTD program and award aims to prevent or reduce occupational injuries, illnesses, and fatalities through the inclusion of prevention considerations in all designs that impact workers. This includes the design, redesign, and retrofit of new and existing work premises, structures, tools, facilities, equipment, machinery, products, substances, work processes, and the organization of work. In addition to reducing the risks of serious injury and illnesses, significant cost savings are often associated with hazard elimination and the application of engineering controls to minimize risk. The NIOSH director praised Mr. Manueli's contributions to the field, and he said that the work spearheaded by Fred Manueli was groundbreaking and inspired the NIOSH prevention effort through a prevention through design effort. Mr. Manueli is a pioneer in the PTD field. ASSP republished many of his influential professional papers in a book entitled Fred Manueli on Safety Management, a collection from professional safety. Mr. Manueli also published numerous occupational safety and health textbooks that always included the need for designing out hazards and the methods to do so. In 1995, he led a focused 10-year NSC initiative, the Institute for Safety Through Design, which culminated in a textbook he co-authored with the same name, Safety Through Design. Over the years, he has published other textbooks and many scientific papers on safety engineering. Back in 2007, NIOSH and numerous partners launched a National Prevention Through Design initiative. Mr. Manueli volunteered to lead the effort to develop and approve a broad, generic, voluntary consensus standard on PTD aligned with international design activities and practice. Under the standards development arm of ASSP, the Prevention Through Design Standard was published in 2011, reaffirmed in 2016, and is now under revision to expand its usefulness and impact worldwide. Mr. Manueli has received many honors and awards for his accomplishments. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, 
podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles of Floyd, Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.